Psalm number 11 in your Bible. Psalm number 11 in your Bible. If you would find it, please. And then stand with me as we read God's Word together. Psalm 11 in your Bible today, please. Psalm 11, verse 1, In the Lord put I my trust. How say ye to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For lo, the wicked bend their, their bow, and they make ready their arrow upon the string, that they may privately shoot at the upright in heart. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence his soul hateth. And upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and a horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. Thank you, and you may be seated. Psalm 11 was written by David. While David was a fugitive of sorts, he was fleeing from King Saul and living out in the wilderness, actually fleeing for his life from the king who was seeking him. The background of this passage is found in 1 Samuel chapter 23. I'll just read a couple of verses. I think that will set it up in your mind. You don't necessarily need to turn there. But in 1 Samuel it says, Then David and his men, which were about 600, arose and departed out of Keilah. And they went whithersoever they could go. And it was told Saul that David was escaped from Keilah. And he forbade to go forth. And David abode in the wilderness in strongholds and hiding places, fortresses and caves would be the idea. He remained in a mountain in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God delivered David out of Saul's hand. And David saw that Saul was come out to seek his life and David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a wood, living in a woodland. And so David wrote this psalm with that as the backdrop, hiding away a fugitive, running for his life from King Saul and his armies. David had a small force, as I read to you, of about 600 men. They were brave men. They were the strongest men of his army. They also were very, very loyal to King David. They understood the dynamics of what was happening in that nation at that point in time. And they were so loyal to David, they were willing to give up their homes and families to stand with him. The story of King Saul, of course, is a different story. It's a story of repeated acts of disobedience. The Lord would speak through his prophet Samuel to King Saul and it was like King Saul did the opposite of whatever God told him to do. Over and over, the story recounts the disobedience of this man who started out so well and ended up such a, such a wretch, really. And when David killed Goliath, 
Saul became very, very jealous because the people were singing this little song that Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. And he got real jealous, and his envy and jealousy turned to hatred. And before long, he was just seething with hatred toward David. And then, so far away from God, he was somehow lured into the occult. And he actually began to visit witches. He began to seek out the dark side of the universe. And his blood lust never stopped. By the time we read this, he is obsessed with killing David because of his jealousy and his envy of him. And David is hiding out here in the wilderness, in the woods, in caves, wherever he can find a place to hide. And this went on literally for months. And David is watching this, and he writes Psalm number 11. When I say that he writes Psalm 11, you understand that I mean that the Holy Spirit inspired Psalm 11 through him. I never want to to be understood to say that a man wrote the Scriptures without the aid of the Holy Spirit, that every word in this book is an inspired word. And so David is writing, and he's here. Maybe he's in a cave, or maybe he's sitting under a tree, somewhere out on a hillside. We don't know exactly where he was, but we know the background and the circumstances. And he's watching the destruction of the nation that he loved much like what is happening in our world today. As we watch the meltdown, the destruction of a nation that we all love, as we sit here this morning, we are all concerned about what is happening in our our nation. And so David wrote these thoughts down, Psalm number 11. And the first thing that I learned from this this psalm is that we cannot escape the events of our times. David could not escape the events of the times in which he lived. If you go back to verse 1 in your Bible, his friends, his loyal supporters, his counselors, if you will, they had said to him, David, you need to flee as a bird to the mountain. You need to take off. You need to get out of here because it's inevitable that Saul is going to kill you. So you need to run to the hills, cross the border, go to the other country. It's not that far away, and you will be safe there. Flee like a bird to the mountain. But David realized something that I hope you and I realize today, and it's this, that we cannot isolate ourselves from the great events of our times. You and I live in this culture. We live in this country, this society. We live here at this time in history. And we cannot, as much as we would like, flee the events of our times. All of us are caught in this web of history, and we must live in it. We must face it. We can't flee to the mountains, as he says here. I think COVID has taught us that over these last 15 or 16 months. We can't isolate ourselves from the events. In fact, it's been very ironic. Sometimes the people who sought the most isolation got the virus. And we think we've isolated ourselves. We think we're safe. 
We never know, do we? We cannot isolate ourselves from the events of our times. I read, you know, a few years ago, this, this uh, prepper thing was very popular in the country. And people were uh, prepping. They were going out and buying a cabin in the woods and preparing it. That word prepper came from that. And they would try to make it secure, and they would put a supply of food and a supply of water and, and guns and all this stuff there. And they were seeking security. They were seeking to isolate themselves from the events of their times. And I read about this particular guy, had a lot of money, bought this big piece of property, hundreds of acres. In the middle of it, there was this hill. He had workmen come. They dug a cave out, and they secured it. And he made it like it was a, a little home there, and he stashed it with food, and he had weapons there, and he thought he was really going to be safe. And he was out digging a little ditch for a water line and had a heart attack and died. The point being, you cannot isolate yourself from the events of life. You have to face them. And that's where David was right here. And as he faces them, he asks himself a question. Look in verse number three. The question is a profound one. The question is relevant for today, if ever a question was. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundations of a society, of a nation, of a church, if a family, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? A very, very heart-searching question, huh? The foundations of Israel at that time that David was thinking of would have been the law of God because they lived under the Mosaic law under the Torah. And the foundations of Israel at that time was the throne, the kingdom itself. And the king was supposed to obey the law. He was under the authority of the law. He was to live a life of morality, a life of justice. He was to be the epitome of what the law stood for. He was to be a man of God God had appointed the kings of Israel. And this man started out so well, and now he is, he's in occultism. He is bitter and angry and full of hatred. This man is boiling over with rage. This man is a would-be murderer. He has hatred like nobody else perhaps around at that time. And this man is destroying the very foundations of that nation that God has put him in charge of. The question today, though, what are the foundations for us today in our nation? How do we make this applicable? Well, we know that the political foundations and the legal foundation of America is found in our Declaration of Independence and in our Constitution. That's, boy, that's bedrock. That's the foundation of America this morning. And we look at that and say, what is happening to that foundation? Why are people seeking to destroy it at this time? It's been so good to us for 245 years. Our nation was founded on July the 4th when we declared independence from England, July the 4th, 1776. And we declared ourselves a nation on that day. Now, we didn't have a constitution. We operated under some 
Articles of Confederation for 11 years. And the nation was really falling apart at that time. And George Washington despaired if we'd ever be able to even bring it together. And so they met in that constitutional convention, you remember. And as they met there, they hammered out this wonderful document. And in 1787, 11 years after we had declared our independence, the Constitution was accepted by the people of this country. And so that would be our legal and our political foundation in America, and it is under attack, as you well know today. But I'm thinking of another foundation today as I stand here before you in a church, and that foundation is that America was founded on biblical morality. America was founded on biblical morality. And by that I mean morality that was based on the Ten Commandments of the Old Testament, the moral teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Thomas Jefferson, who today is always portrayed as almost an atheist, as a deist who really didn't believe much about Christianity, and he was he wasn't a professing Christian as you and I would know him to be. But Thomas Jefferson so believed that the moral teachings of the Bible had to underpin the nation that he did his own personal study. He wrote it in his handwriting in David Barton's book that someone gave me just last week. I was looking through it, and there's a picture of that handwritten document with Thomas Jefferson's signature on the front of it. And what Jefferson did is he went through the Gospels, and he studied them every single verse. And every time he found a moral teaching, now he wasn't talking about the cross and salvation and, and Christian faith and doctrine. He was looking for moral principles by which man could live and which could be implemented into, into society. And every time he would find one in the Gospels, he would write it down. And the front page of it with his signature, he titled it this, 81 Moral, uh, 81 moral Teachings of Jesus of Nazareth, and his signature beneath it, written in his own hand. And what's interesting is that his daughter owned that, and somebody found out about that, and they the U.S. Congress discovered it, and they purchased that from his daughter in the year 1902. And then they published it as a handbook of morals and ethics for the Congress to be used by the senators and the members of the House of Representatives. And this was handed out, published at government expense, the 81 Moral Teachings of Jesus of Nazareth by Thomas Jefferson. Now, you've probably heard today of the Jefferson Bible, and that's what this document is. And it left out the deity of Christ. It left out the blood of Christ. It left out the, the teaching of the cross and salvation because of Jefferson's uh, personal belief or lack thereof. But I'll tell you what it did it was the moral teachings of Jesus Christ. And by the way, Jefferson never called it a Bible. That came along later. He called it, he titled the document, the, the Moral Teachings of Jesus Christ. 
His idea was that the country would buy into those teachings and that we would establish a moral basis, a commonly agreed upon morality for the United States of America. Later, President Zachary Taylor, according to the New York Semi-Weekly Times Tribune, I don't know what that was, but it was the newspaper of the day. In May of 1849, they published an excerpt from President Taylor's speech. Here's the excerpt, quote, A free government cannot exist without religion and morals, and there cannot be morals without religion, nor can there be religion without the Bible, end of quote. I hope you really listen to that. I want you to take that to heart today. The president at that time wrote, a free government cannot exist without religion and morals. And there cannot be morals without religion, nor can there be religion without the Bible. The moral foundation of the United States was found in the Ten Commandments and in the Gospels of Jesus Christ. Now, we know in looking back through history as Christians, unless there is a commonly agreed upon morality, a set of standards of right and wrong, of righteousness and evil, unless there is a clearly defined morality that the nation is going to fragment, Without a commonly, that's, that's just a great principle. I hope some of you will write it down. Without a commonly agreed upon morality, nations fragment. And today, boy, like David, as he looked at his nation with Saul leading it down the path to destruction, in the same manner today, we look at our nation and we see cracks in the foundation. And if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do. And we see those cracks and an unprecedented moral decline in our nation today. And if we're God's people, if we're righteous people, it breaks our heart. Nothing should concern you today more than the spiraling downward in morals in the United States of America today. In 1963, the Supreme Court of the United States made it illegal to read the Bible, the basis of morality, in public schools. Ten years later, in 1973, the Supreme Court of the United States discovered, after 190 years or something, they discovered something in the Constitution nobody had ever seen in almost 200 years. They discovered that an unborn baby had no right to live. And there's a major, major blow to morality again. And in 2015, the Supreme Court of the United States discovered what nobody had ever seen in all those years, over 200 years now. Nobody before had ever seen same-sex marriage in the Constitution, but this current crop of judges found it. And so... I knew we were in trouble because marriage is foundational. 
the right to life is foundational. The Bible is foundational for all morality. And when I saw the White House that same year lit up in rainbow colors, I knew that 2 Timothy chapter 3 had come home to America. We were living in perilous times. And this week, Dixie, Disneyland, which is supposed to be the paragon of clean entertainment, issued a statement. No longer will the announcer say before the evening performance, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, because that's offensive to other genders. So we live in a time of such moral confusion. We can't say ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. We can't refer to the master bedroom on the schematic of the diagram of the house that we're looking at. Everything that we want to say now is incorrect for somebody, and it all points back to our loss of a biblical morality in America today. Well, I could preach on that for a long time, but I want you to look at verse 1, how the psalm starts, because it begins with David's deliberate, intentional choice. It begins with an affirmation. In the Lord put I my trust. And then he says, therefore, I can't flee away like the bird to the mountain. And so we can't escape the great events of our day. But secondly, I want you to notice the source of our security. What is the source of our security then? The question from the psalmist is, if the foundations be destroyed, what can we do? Okay, I'll tell you what we can do. Number one, it's right here in the text. The first thing we can do is put our trust in the Lord. The first thing we can do is look to God, which unfortunately so many in America are not doing today. Yes, we do have a personal responsibility to provide for our personal safety, for our families. Yes, I'm not, I'm not minimizing human responsibility when I'm preaching to you about this, but I'm telling you this. My security today is not in isolation from the problems of the day. My security today is not in my vaccination of the day. My security this morning is not in money. It's not in science. It's not in technology. My security is in the Lord and if we forget that, we become very, very insecure people, do we not? Now, I want you to notice in verse 4, David, in verse 1, David says, I'm putting my trust in the Lord. When the foundations are falling apart, then look up, put your, put your trust in the Lord. And verse 4, he describes the Lord that he's looking to, that he's trusting in. The Lord is in his holy temple. His throne is in heaven. His eyelids behold. His eyelids try. He looks down and he observes society. He observes the children of men, every one of us. And so in verse 4, he gives us a right view of God. He said, the Lord is on his throne in heaven. The Lord is still sovereign. 
God is still in control. The Lord reigns. The Lord is greater than COVID. The Lord is greater than the circumstances of life. The Lord is greater than China and whatever her intentions may be today. The Lord is on his throne. He's sovereign. Nothing happens without him noticing his eyes. Behold, it says here. This is not saying because God is in heaven that he's distant and remote and uncaring. This is not saying that God is so far from us that he doesn't care about us. In fact, it's saying the opposite. It's saying that, yes, he's on his throne in heaven, but he notices his eyelids look down, his eyelids try the children of men. It's really saying that God is is talking about his transcendence. That's a big word. We use it about God because he's a big God. It takes big words to describe a big God, doesn't it? And he looks down upon the world, but he's over the world. He's transcendent. He's greater than. He's bigger than. He's more powerful than the entire world. And David said, when the foundations are crumbling, that's how you keep your security. That's how you keep your sanity. You say, God is on the throne. He's in charge. Things are not out of control, though they may look it to us. Listen to me. If you have a small God today, you have a big problem. If you have a small God, you have a big problem because things might get out of control if he isn't big enough. But if your God is the God of the Bible, then he can handle the problems that we face in our culture today when the foundations are crumbling. Dr. S. Lewis Johnson wrote, I quote him, The hardest verse in the Bible to believe is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. He said, if you can believe that verse, you won't have any trouble with the rest of the Bible. The truth of that statement eluded me for a long time. I didn't get it because I'd never really thought about Genesis 1.1 in the larger context of the universe. But it is hugely important, he said, that the Bible begins with a declaration, with a statement of fact, and not with an argument, end of quote. The Bible doesn't begin with an argument that, well, I'm going to prove to you there is a God. It begins with a declaration. There is a God, and that God is so great he could create this universe and everything in it. And that statement means that the God who is on the throne is a sovereign God. He was reigning over his universe. I don't understand why he allows the things that he does, but I trust in him. My source of strength is in Psalm 11, verse 1, part A, in the Lord I put my trust. Now, you can deny it. You can deny there's a God, but you're pitting your little brain against the evidence of the whole universe. You're actually saying that there can be the effect, the universe, without a cause. And I think ultimately that's the argument that ends all the arguments. Can everything that is be without a cause? 
And the answer, I think, logically is absolutely not. But I want you to call your attention to something else. David's question is, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, number one, we can look to our source of, of strength. We can look to the throne of God. Number two, we need to remember we live in an age of grace, but that justice will prevail. We live in an age of grace right now, but that justice will prevail. Read with me again, beginning in verse 5. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence his soul hateth. And upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and a horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. We live in this age of, of grace. Our emphasis has always been on God's love. I never preach a sermon, but what I don't mention God's love, I don't think. And I talk about God's grace, and I always keep before you God's mercy, how He cares for you and me. And the gospel itself is called by the Apostle Paul the gospel of grace. Grace meaning that we deserve something else, but that God gives us mercy and forgiveness and salvation. God gives to us as undeserving people what we don't deserve, but He does it because of His love for us. And the gospel then is a message of grace. And every time I preach it and tell people that God loves them and that Christ died for their sins and that if they will repent of their sins and come to the Lord Jesus, that He will graciously save them without cost, without merit, without any works on their part. Listen to me carefully, though. The gospel is a message of grace for me. It was not just about grace for the one who hung on that cross. It was a message of justice that he had to go through. And as our Lord Jesus Christ hung on that cross, shedding his blood, pouring out of his head, pouring out of his side, his hands, his feet, beaten and spat upon and cursed and ridiculed and mocked, and the pain and the heat and the thirst and the crowd mocking him as he hung there naked before the world, the Son of God, the purest being who ever lived. And while it's grace to you and me, it was all about justice for him because God was pouring out his wrath upon his own Son so that as our substitute, our sins would be paid for by Him. It's grace to you and me. It was justice that day for Him. And we in America, and we in churches like this, we've heard about grace so much that I'm afraid that we don't appreciate it like we ought to. And we forget about God's justice, but David hadn't forgotten about it. Look at verse 5 again. The Lord trieth the righteous, 
But the wicked and him that loveth violence, the lovers of violence, he was probably thinking of Saul there, that Saul was out to kill him. He loved violence. He loved blood. And as David thought about that, I'm sure he had to be thinking about this wicked man pursuing him. In the last part of that verse, I want you to notice it. The Bible says that God's soul hateth those that love violence, the wicked. Upon the wicked in verse 6, he's going to rain snares and fire and brimstone and a horrible tempest, and this is the portion of their cup. And take those two phrases together. God hates those who love violence, and this is the portion of their cup. In other words, this is their destiny fire and brimstone and all that goes with it. You say, preacher, what does that mean? That says that God hates? You think I'm going to modify that? You think I'm going to water that down for you? Do you know what America needs? America needs a million pulpits today to flame with the justice of Almighty God as well as the grace of God. You know what that verse means? It means exactly what it says. You don't need a dictionary to define that passage, do you? But you know, it probably doesn't do a lot for a lot of people. That God's justice hangs over their future like a dark and foreboding cloud coming up before a storm. It ought to make people's blood freeze to read that in the Bible. It probably doesn't because... The fear of God has departed from America today. But when you turn your back on Jesus Christ and on the Bible and on the gospel, you've turned your back on God's love, my friend. De Tocqueville visited America in its early days. He was a French philosopher, a brilliant man, a darling intellectual of Europe. And he comes to America and he tours the country And then he goes back to Europe and he writes about this new nation that's arisen among the nations of the earth. And you've heard me quote it before so many times, but it bears repetition because he wrote about America. I visited America, and the secret of its greatness was not in its natural resources, and it was not in its leadership, and it was not, and he goes through a whole bunch of knots And then he says, the secret of America's greatness I found was in her pulpits and on Sundays in America in every little hamlet in every big city in every pulpit, the pulpits flame with righteousness. That was his phrase. They flame with righteousness. They're not flaming so much with righteousness today. And David looked and he said, listen, if the foundations are destroyed, people need to remember that the wheels of God's justice, they grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. And today, America needs that message. And every Christian in America needs that message, so you won't forget This is the truth of God's Word.
in verse 7. David concludes this psalm with, For the righteous God loveth righteousness, and his countenance doth behold the upright. Who are the righteous he's referring to here? The righteous Lord loveth righteousness. And his counsel beholds the upright. Who are the upright? Who are the righteous he's referring to here? Well, they're the saved, of course. Those of us with faith in Jesus Christ. Those of us who've been washed in the blood. Those of us who've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. None of us today can boast in our own righteousness in fact, the Scripture says our righteousness is, he compares them to filthy rags. It's not that I am righteous because of what I do or what I am. I am righteous because when I trust in Jesus Christ, God takes the righteousness of Jesus Christ and counts that to my account. Isn't that wonderful today? I get the benefits of the goodness and righteousness of Christ even though I don't personally have that, but the Lord imputes that to me. He counts it to my account. Now, because it says that the righteous Lord loveth righteousness, it, it doesn't mean that I'm never going to suffer problems. You know, it doesn't mean we will not face tribulation and persecution and bad things in our life as Christians. David was facing some pretty bad things right here. His life was within a, a hairbreadth of being taken a time or two. So it's not saying that the righteous people will not have problems. The righteous go through COVID with the unrighteous. But it does say this, that the Lord will one day deliver and reward the righteous people. And so we look, we believe there will be a day of deliverance, don't we? Richard John Newhouse is a famous writer of the day. His theology is not always very good. But what he said on this day was wonderful because Newhouse said, these may be bad times, but they're the only times given to us. And remember this, listen to this, write this maybe down in your Bible. Hope is still a Christian virtue and despair is a sin. Yes, we always have hope, don't we? Note it again. Hope is still a Christian virtue, and despair is a sin. I was reading, preparing for this week's message and this message, and I came across a quote, interestingly, by a Jewish rabbi, and I thought, man, it just blessed me. So I'll tell you how much. I picked it up, and I, I ran in the, in the room where Norma was, and I said, Norma, listen to this. This is the greatest thing I've heard in a long time. I was so excited about it, and I want you to hear it, and uh, I think you'll be excited about it. It's by a man named Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. He wrote it in a book called Future Tense. And what a word to our times today when we look and see that the foundations are being destroyed. What can we do? Here's what he said. I quote, Once after speaking... Someone came up to me and said, I appreciated your words, Rabbi, but don't you think you're fighting a losing battle? Well, it was a good question. I replied to them, yes, the Jewish fight is a losing battle. It always has been. 
Moses lost, Joshua lost, Jeremiah lost, because we have striven for ideals just beyond our reach. We've hoped for a gracious society just beyond the possible. We have believed in a messianic age just over the horizon. We have wrestled with the angel, and we have emerged limping. But meanwhile, those who won have disappeared, and we're still here, still fighting the losing battle, never accepting defeat, refusing to resign ourselves to cynicism or to give up hope, while those who today, as in the past, seek our destruction, that kind of losing battle, I tell you, is worth fighting even more so than winning an easy victory. I said, amen. We're, we're fighting a losing battle as the world looks at it, but in the mind of God, we're never accepting defeat. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And so let the scoffers today scoff and let the mockers today mock. Our hope and our security and our source is not in the things of this world. Jesus Christ said, I will come again. If he doesn't come in my lifetime, he'll come in somebody else's lifetime. No matter what I face, he said, my grace is sufficient for you. And so he is going to see us through no matter what happens in the world about us today. Three words need to guide us as we go forward. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Three words ought to guide the righteous. Number one is the gospel. Above everything else at the Florence Baptist Temple, as we go forward in the future, let's keep the gospel paramount. The old, old story of Jesus and his love of his death on the cross, of his shed blood, of salvation through people putting their faith in that simple thing. Let's keep the gospel pure and unadorned, the story of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the second thing is let's remain faithful. God didn't ever ask us to be successful, but he did command us to be faithful. What I want of a steward, he said, is that the steward always be faithful, dependable, reliable, that we can rise above our emotions and our feelings, that we can rise above our fears in a time of COVID because we have a courage that this world doesn't know anything about, a courage based upon the promises of God. Keep the gospel in the front. Be faithful. And let's never compromise with the truth. We don't want to be ugly about it, but we want to never compromise with the truth of God's Word. He called this church into being 53 years ago, coming up in November. You can see how he's blessed it. And the other ministries that we have, I mean, every day I find out about those blessings. I stood over here before the service, and a young man came up to see me, Michael Oak. He's sitting over here. Michael graduated here in 1998 or nine. He was a member of our church. It's been 20 years or so. He left. He went away. 
He's a physician now in Cincinnati, Ohio, pediatric physician. And he said, I wanted to come home. And boy, what a thrill to come and just look around and see what God has done. And we have that from so many different sources, how God has blessed this place. Pray that he'll keep his hand on it and help me keep the gospel first. Let's be faithful to it and never back away from God's truth. Stand to your feet with me in prayer, please.